the text we're about to read is comes towards the end of kind of Paul's long writing and relationship with the Corinthians, and in many ways, it's this what we're going to read is a fundraiser, but as we might hopefully find out, it's actually so much more than that. Now, as you excel in everything, Paul writes, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in utmost eagerness and eagerness and in our love for you, so we want you to also excel in this generous undertaking. I do not say this as a command, but I am testing the genuineness of your love against the earnestness of others. For you know the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. And in this matter, I'm giving my advice. It is appropriate for you who began last year not only to do something, but even to desire to do something. Now finish doing it so that your eagerness may be matched by completing it according to your means. For if the eagerness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. I do not mean that there should be Relief for others and pressure on you, but it is a question of a fair balance between your present abundance and their need, so that their abundance may be for your need in order that there may be a fair balance. As it is written, the one who had much did not have too much, and the one who had little did not have too little. The word of the Lord. Join me in a prayer. Gracious and loving God, attend to us in these moments together. Open our ears to the words you would have us hear. Open our hearts to the presence of your Holy Spirit. Open our minds to all the ways in which you teach us your way. Remind us of who you are and who we are called to be. In Christ's name, amen. So if you're visiting for the first time today, this is abnormal for me. Some may tell you I usually run around and act a fool up here, and I don't have a stand or a stool or... I'm usually moving about, and that's what I'm used to. Um, We're doing it different for a reason. I'm sitting down to kind of, it's a chat. This is a chat. One-sided, I understand, but it's a chat. (laughs) The week did this to me. So I want to do something a little different today. One, I obviously didn't memorize my sermon. I didn't have time. I kept working and working on it and working on it. The work on it never stopped. I usually spend about two hours memorizing, in case you're wondering how that comes about. That's how. But I want to talk to you about what I see as the emerging identity and mission of this church. 
I want to talk to you about what I, as one of your pastors, believe God's call for us is. And I want to start off by talking about a conversation I had this week. Our music director, David Hayes, and I attended a workshop. I don't know if a workshop's quite right. It's a marathon week. It was a, a whole semester seminary course compacted into one week, and it was crazy. So much fun. Um, but, but during one of the classes, I got into a conversation, oh, the, the workshop was on music and worship, and, I, and during one of the classes, I got into a conversation with someone else about what should and should not be included in worship, and what is and what isn't worship, and it probably won't surprise you to know that his version was much more rigid than mine. Surprise, surprise, I'm sure. Anyway, it became obvious that we did not see it the same way at all. It got a little harder to stay in the conversation. We started to try to prove each other wrong with our little pieces of information, our holy grail of information, you know. And it ended in this conflicted place where we were kind of looking sideways at each other. At the next break, I, in a moment of clarity, I mustered up the courage to try and re-engage my new friend, acquaintance, and I said, I said, I want to apologize if I came across as antagonistic earlier. That was not my intent. And he looked at me and he said, I'm so glad you said something. One of my problems, he said, is that I think I'm right all the time. It's one of my problems too. The reason I bring it up is at some point in any conversation, particularly if it is moving in a divided direction, you need to check in on the relationship. But that's not the way our world thinks right now. The way our world thinks is that we, are, we must insist on being right at all costs. What we do instead is we say things like, well, if you don't, disagree, if you don't agree with me, then I'm not interested in talking to you anymore. If you're not in my camp, then I don't want you in the camp. We don't know how to manage our emotions and stay engaged. We don't know how to do that. We should know how to do that. A Christian should know how to do that. After all, our Lord went all the way to the cross in order to help us stay engaged. We disengage instead. The reason we want to disengage is because if I disengage, then I don't really have to deal with what I'm feeling. Not really. If I disengage, then I can simply run off and vent about what happened 
and not have to deal with it really at all. I get to blame everything else on the, emo- the, the conversation that took place on the other person when I disengage. It's called emotional cutoff, and it happens all the time. When you emotionally cut off from someone else, the short-term gain, and there is a great one, is that it makes you feel immediately better. It's a huge release because now you don't have to deal with it because you don't have to deal with it at all anymore. You're just emotionally cut off, don't have to deal with it. But the long-term price is a loss of trust. You and the other person are now less willing to trust someone else in a new conversation. And the lack of trust, if the pattern continues, it continues to grow to the point where everyone is entering a conversation with skepticism if they even want to start one at all. What it creates is emotional distance in society. When you're emotionally distant, Hate gets easier. Blame gets easier. Violence gets easier. We start to care more about what someone is saying than we do about the person who is saying it. In other words, in the long term, it can reach the level that we now have. A world where no one trusts Everyone blames. And violence is just another report on the daily news. It has been said by me, given my work in generational patterns in history, that generational patterns tell us that every 80 80 some odd years, every 80 some odd years, we face some kind of major crisis. Now, that's not to say that there aren't crises in between. There are. But every 80-ish years, it all culminates to some major crisis. So far, this pattern has held true. The American Revolution and the Civil War are about 80 years apart. The Civil War and the Great Depression, World War II time, about 80 years apart. I could give you more, but that should help. Right now, roughly 80 years after World War II, we are in the middle of the next major crisis. Many say that this crisis began in 08 with the global financial meltdown. But the elements are present for absolutely anything to happen. Anything. We are distant from one another. We don't trust one another. We blame as much as we can on whoever we can find. We do not engage. We would rather lob from a distance. We are increasingly violent. We're not that far away from where we were 160 years ago when the first shots were fired on Fort Sumter. A country that has already had one civil war is more likely to have another one than a country that has not had a civil war. How we behave towards one another is paramount. How we behave towards one another is more important than getting our facts right. It may even be more important than being right. 
And that's why I believe that as hard as it is to do, and it is hard, God's call upon this church is to stay engaged. Be willing to face whatever fear you have so that you can continue the relationship you have with the person standing right in front of you. When you're in a disagreement, take a breath and then take another breath. When you say something that you know you could have said better, own it. Apologize for it. Even if the other person does not do the same, stay engaged. One person after the last service asked me, they said, what if the other person doesn't want to stay engaged? And my only reply was, that is up to them. You can only do what's up to you. But as far as it is up to you, stay engaged. I want to talk a minute about Paul. Paul is something else. He's an interesting character. I just love Paul. And at first glance, the scripture we just read doesn't remotely seem like it even applies to what I'm talking about, right? And at one level, it actually doesn't. I mean, it just, at one level, it doesn't fit. But on another level, it absolutely fits. And here's why. What you need to know about, the, about Corinth is that it was a highly conflicted church. They did not agree with each other. And what's more, they didn't trust each other. At least that's the place it had gotten to. Paul had gone and visited the first time, and he helped set up, you know, he helped found the, the church there in Corinth and the first worshipers of Jesus Christ there, and he, he began that movement there, and then he left. And after he left, other folks came in and other voices that countered what Paul was teaching and didn't jive with what Paul had originally taught them. So they began to believe different things. They began to practice different things. They began to form factions almost to the point, if not to the point, of actually labeling them. Maybe they were even close to the labels like red and blue. They lost trust. They began to blame. So Paul wrote them. Now, we don't know exactly how many letters Paul wrote. If you were to look at the Bible, you would think two, right? First Corinthians, Second Corinthians, but we think Second Corinthians is a com combination of at least two, maybe three, maybe more letters. So we're not sure. What we do know is that Paul did try to write to them about their conflict, and the letter he wrote upset them. It did not sit well with them at all, and they got mad at him. They were getting to lose faith in him. So right then, Paul could have simply given up on them altogether just written them off, emotional cutoff, right? That would have been easier. I mean, after all, in his mind, he was right and they were wrong, so forget them. That way, he could have just gone on his way and blamed the whole thing on the ridiculous Corinthians. But that's not what he does. Instead, Paul writes them again and again and again. He stays engaged. 
no matter how hard it is for him to do it. At one point in 2 Corinthians, he apologizes for his first letter. Even though you can tell in the way that he writes it, he knows that he's right. But he apologizes for his first letter and how it caused them grief. He says things to them like, my heart, our heart is wide open to you. Make room in your hearts for me, for us. Instead of arguing his point and continuing to prove to them that he's right, he only talks about the importance of their relationship. And then in our reading today, he goes a step further. He invites them to stay engaged through one of the highest forms of engagement there is through giving. One of the highest forms of relational engagement is in giving. So he asks them to be part of the ministry he is part of. To give, to stay engaged. I'm testing the genuineness of your love, he tells them. In other words, I'm inviting you to stay in relationship with me. What I believe God is calling us to do. I'm inviting you to own the fact that we are a purple church. You know what I mean by purple church, right? Red and blue makes purple. We have red people, we have blue people, we have people who want nothing to do with any of that. We're a purple church. The only way to be a purple church is to learn how to stay engaged. To know and respect that the person sitting right next to you may not see things in remotely the same way as you do, but they still believe in the same Christ. May not see Christ the same way, but still believe in the same Christ. Now, I will admit that it would be much easier to preach and teach a one-sided gospel and then to say to the rest of you folk, well, sorry, you can just go find somewhere else to be. That might be easier, perhaps. There's only one problem. That's not who I am. And I don't believe it's who you are either. I want to stay engaged. I feel called to stay engaged. After Hurricane Harvey, we sent a team, this church sent a team down to Beaumont to help an area down there that was struggling to recover and then guess what? We went back. And we went back again. And we went back again. We went back four times and are planning to go at some point again. And then our choir, the youth choir on their mission tour, sang in the local church there. We are the only church that did that. The people in Beaumont 
know that this congregation believes relationships are the most important thing. That what we're doing there is not quite as important as simply that we are there. It would have been much easier to just go once and have to deal with it only once. But that's not who we are. That's not who we're becoming. We don't cut ties when something goes awry. Instead, we're trying to do the much harder work of staying engaged in relationship with others, feeling their pain, celebrating their joy, just like Paul does with the Corinthians. That, I believe, is the emerging identity of this congregation, God's call to us. We're called to be in the world, so be in it, stay in it. It's hard, emotional, messy work, but I believe it to be holy work. I believe it to be our work. To use Paul's words, as you excel in everything, excel also in this generous undertaking. When it comes to relationships, I believe Christians should be the experts on the field. Stay engaged. Amen.